In recent years, beloved listener, there's been an explosion, global explosion of think tanks of all types. Some are upfront about their agendas, some claim to be independent, some are open about their funding sources and others, well, much more reticent. But today, I'm going to tell you about a network of think tanks that uh, you're probably not aware of. It's called the Atlas Network and it partners with at least 500, repeat, 500 think tanks globally. Some of them, uh, some of the think tanks get funding from Atlas and others get grants or, or training opportunities. In the studio with me is Dr Jeremy Walker and Jeremy has been, um, well, researching the history of Atlas and what this think tank group have been achieving in terms of policy influences across the globe, particularly in the areas of, surprise, surprise, climate communications and more recently, the campaign for the Indigenous Voice to Parliament. Jeremy is a senior lecturer in social and political sciences just across the road at the University of Technology, Sydney, and is the author of More Heat Than Light, The Tangle Roots of Ecology, Energy and Economics, published by Palgrave. And uh, thanks for coming into the studio. What the hell is the Atlas Network? Australians, uh, your listeners today, they'll they'll be aware of certain free market think tanks which are very visible in Australia, or very noisy, we might say. In particular, the Institute of Public Affairs, based in Melbourne, Um, Perhaps less well-known is the Centre for Independent Studies, which now has offices uh, a block down from the New South Wales Parliament. And there are other organisations as well, which may be even lesser known. Um, Liberty Works, um, which recently hosted the far-right Conservative Political Action Conference, um, or until recently hosted them. And um, other organisations, there is the Mankell Institute in Perth, um, the Australian Taxpayers Association, the Australian Libertarian Society. If we go over the... I, I know of quite a few yeah, of those, you know but I didn't recognise that they were connected. I see. Okay, so well, what the Atlas Network is, is basically there's two ways in which we can understand what that means. First of all, um, the Atlas Network refers to the entire constellation of free market, they call themselves free market think tanks, and it also refers to the an actual organisation which was founded in 1981 called the Atlas Economic Research Foundation, which now is headquartered by the campus of George Mason University, um, not far from the US capital. And so the term refers uh, can refer on the one hand to that exa- that, that organisation, which was registered in Delaware, which is of course a tax um, and financial. Secrecy, uh, it's the, the, the most secret of the tax jurisdictions in the US. It was registered there in 1981. Or it can refer to the entire constellation of think tanks that affiliate with it. So uh, in 2020, the Atlas Network website listed 515 think tanks in more than in a, in a hundred countries. Uh, they've now <laughs> taken that list off. And so currently they say they've created another whole 70 just this year. So the number is around 600 in at least 100 countries. Okay. Tell us about uh, Anthony Fisher, please. Okay. So Anthony Fisher is a, was a, um, I guess, a member of the uh, upper middle class, the elite class in, in England. He was born to a family of mine owners and uh, soldiers, uh, politicians, I believe. 
he attended the elite schools of Eton, looking across to Windsor Palace and uh, Cambridge. Um, he was a pilot in World War II. And when the Labor Party was elected in 1945 uh, with its beverage plan to bring in, you know, uh, cradle-to-grave welfare, to nationalise coal, gas, uh, railways, steel production, um, this sent him into a shock and he went to Frederick Hayek, uh, the founder of the Montpelier Society and the uh, most famous philosopher of the neoliberals, and Hayek said to him, um, don't bother about going into politics. He was contemplating a career as a conservative MP. He said, what you need to do is change the ideas of the teachers, the lecturers, the journalists. So target the elites. Not so much the elites, but what Hayek referred to as the secondhand dealers in ideas. So the people <laughs> who create and reproduce the, the normal values of society. Hayek himself served the elites. He came from a class of Austrians, upper-class Austrians, who basically fulfilled these uh, major administrative positions for the real elites, that is, the aristocracy. And, um, yeah. And I understand early funding came from uh, oil companies. This is true, yeah. So Hayek's early, um, earliest career, he worked with his mentor, Ludwig von Mises, uh, another radical far-right liberal um, in Austria who ran the business, uh, the Chamber of Commerce in Vienna, and they started a thing called the Austrian... Uh, business Cycle Research Centre, which was financed by the Rockefeller Foundation, which is uh, was Standard Oil, um, now ExxonMobil. And the Rockefeller Foundation also financed uh, a whole lot of uh, positions at the London School of Economics, where Hayek ended up, and they also founded the early conferences that led to the, the beginning of the neoliberal movement. So Fisher takes his uh, think tank model, global, to mm. the US and to Australia. You talk about connections with the Koch brothers, for example. Yeah, so uh, Fisher established the first neoliberal think tank. It's called the Institute of Economic Affairs, still extremely influential. And the trick of it was that um, that the funding was never disclosed, right? Um, and we know now that the earliest big funders, so that was founded in 1955, um, the year after Fisher joined the Montpelerin Society, and it as far as we know, the early, the first big corporate funders that came on board in the early 60s were Shell and BP. And by the mid-70s, the funders list looked like basically the backbone of the British commercial empire. So you had all the big banks, you had Rio Tinto and Shell, probably the biggest funders. All the American oil companies were involved, um, mining companies, banks. And in Australia, I understand Rupert was an early funder. Um, well... We have to look uh, go a little bit further back because the we look at the Institute of Public Affairs, which was founded beforehand in 1943, and um, we need to go even further back to the huge uh, mining monopoly and media monopoly called Collins House in the early 20th century in Melbourne. So Collins House, um, they were the, they had a piece of nearly every mining deal in Australia, and uh, they founded Western Mining Corporation. Um, Electrolytic zinc and Broken Hill Associated Smelters and so on. Um, and they, um, as has been revealed by Sally Young in her book Paper Emperors um, from Detailed Archival Research, they, uh, Collins House, through various proxies, went up buying all these mining, uh, buying, buying newspapers in mining company towns um, 
and tilting the editorial against the mining unions and against the labor and against, you know. And so they consolidated all these into uh, a company called News Limited in Adelaide. And then eventually uh, Keith Murdoch, who ran the Herald and Weekly Times group, which they owned, was then assisted to acquire the ownership of News Limited. And um, so, and, and they said so, you know, in their own internal communications that the purpose of this was to do propaganda against the, uh, to do propaganda for the public and against the, the workers uh, in the mines. And finally, in 1981, he, um, he starts the network that would link all these organisations. This is true, yeah. So um, Fisher's having an enormous uh, success with the um, IEA in, in, in London, the Institute of Economic Affairs. Um, in 1970, he's invited to the US to do a tour with an organisation called the Institute of Humane Studies, which was trying to import this radical uh, far-right libertarian ideology for the Austrian school, uh, von Mises and, and Hayek. And the key sponsor and, and uh, organiser of that was Charles Koch, right? So he does a tour in 1970 and he teaches American businessmen this method, the think tank method, and he's saying, you, you know, this, so this is, we have this, all these social movements out there, the, you know, stop the war movement, the environmental movement, um, you have quite, you know, radical labour. And he says, you've got to fight back and the way to do it is you start up an institute, um, it's called research, so it's tax deductible, and then we get these scholars who are all from the Mpelerin Society, um, and they'll say the things that you want to say and then you can quote this research and we amplify that to the media. So we flood every channel of the media with this research and um, and that way the public, but the public doesn't know who's paying for it. So obviously if Shell came out and said, you know, we don't think there should be any environmental controls on the petroleum industry, everyone would just laugh and take no notice. But if you have uh, scholars saying the same thing or, you know, journalists saying the same thing over and over again without disclosing the funding then this has a much greater impact. Sitting in the studio with me is Dr Jeremy Walker. <clears throat> now, we've all heard of Mount Everest, Mount Kosciuszko, but I don't know anything about Mount Pelerin. Mm -hmm. So Mount Pelerin is uh, the name of a resort town in Switzerland where the Mount Pelerin Society had its first meeting in 1947. Post-war consensus was, um, you know, on the kind of Keynesian model of uh, the government would manage the economy for full employment, redistributive taxation, progressive taxation, um, welfare and so on like that. Right? This was the consensus both in the national and international level, at least in the West, Western countries. And so what he did was to bring together these uh, liberals that wanted to push back against that. Um, but again, Hayek's early, earliest uh, you know, work and, and this, many of the scholars that were brought together there, and it wasn't just scholars, it was statesmen like uh, uh, German, German uh, prime minister and, and, and they're also uh, Austrian aristocrats that, uh, you know, uh, pretenders to the throne. So uh, we're witnessing, in a sense, the birth of neoliberalism. Yes, you could say that. And is John Howard a member? John Howard is a member of the Mont Pelerin Society. Uh, doesn't it make you proud, hey? Uh, uh, well, it's, it's kind of interesting because Howard was the first fully neoliberal government that we had in Australia and... Um, Unsurprisingly, you know, he uh, came to power in a, you know, a fear campaign against Native Title Act and the Mabo decision and the WIC decision, promising him bucket loads of extinguishment, uh, confessed himself a climate sceptic, refused to ratify Kyoto. Um, I remember it well. Mm. So um, is the Atlas Network, can we peep through the chinks and see funding anywhere? 
Well, we certainly can. Um, if we go to the United States, where there is uh, the laws around philanthropic foundations, so a lot of very wealthy people uh, in the US park their money in philanthropic foundations, um, and also for you know tax deductible charitable organizations or research, so they have to they have to produce a public form which shows where the money is going. And, and there we can see evidence of the say the Koch brothers or Exxon Mobil. Certainly, that's the case. So, uh, a very good paper by Robert Brule in 2014, an American scholar. He he went through all of this. He he found a list of all of the organisations in the US that were doing climate denial or climate obstruction. And then he, they tallied up all of the evidence of, of where the money was coming from, from these big foundations and where it was going to. And nearly all of the organisations that were receiving this money were uh, affiliated with the Atlas Network. And, and the organisations where the money was coming from, um, the ExxonMobil Foundation, the Charles Koch Foundation, the SCAFE Foundation. So it's one big happy extended family. That's correct. And the key issue is to create, they all like to call themselves independent, but we don't, there's not much to suggest that they are really independent of their funding sources, which are not disclosed. And the fact is that they, they work together um, and all of their kind of outputs, even though they're different, kind, they might take different, apparently different positions on certain issues, um, they all tend to converge on the same um, outcome, which is to, to create the impression that there is a whole lot of independent civil society organisations and researchers um, that want us to, for example, not to have a carbon tax or that climate science isn't real or that there shouldn't be a voice to parliament. Where would we be without them? Now, the lack of disclosure of where outfits like the IPA get their money from is a real issue when they regularly pitch their, their commentators to the media, including here at the ABC. Yes, um, and I think it's very concerning because the whole purpose, the, the reason they exist in the first place is to flood the public sphere and every channel of the media with the messages that their corporate funders want to be put out there and, and in a way which makes, that, that creates this sort of, uh, the, the, but we don't know where those messages are coming from. We don't know who funds them. But we do know about the Centre for Independent Studies and this is from uh, Paul Kelly, uh, uh, edit, editor of The Australian, I believe. Um, his classic uh, work, uh, The End of Certainty, so it's his celebration of neoliberal reform through the 80s. And um, he describes the origins of the Centre for Independent Studies. So, um, And again, it's always that uh, what they don't want is that the problem was that the, these big corporations are extremely unpopular with the public. Um, nobody liked them and uh, nobody trusted them, their role in the Vietnam War or in industrial pollution or in attacking workers' rights. So what um, happens is in 1976, John Bernithan, who was at the time the uh, manager of the Adelaide Advertiser, I believe, in the Murdoch Stable, who was also the founder of Santos, the giant gas company, um, which has enormous influence in Australia now. And he invites Fisher out for these uh, series of private meetings with uh, very wealthy private individuals, many of them connected with mining, and to pitch this idea of we need an Australian Institute of Economic Affairs in 1976. Now, the funding comes on board uh, a couple of years later, and the funding comes from um, Santos, from Shell, the global oil company, which operates in nearly every country in the world and uh, was an early uh, founder of the funder of the Institute of Economic Affairs and has funded many, many other think tanks around the world where we have that information. 
Um, Shell Rio Tinto, which was also the biggest funder of the IEA, one of them, um, and BHP and Western Mining Corporation, um, headed by Hugh Morgan. So the key players in the foundation of the CIS were uh, John Bernithan, Hugh Morgan, who was an international mining politics guy, and uh, Maurice Newman, who incidentally is also one of well, the Well, he's still around kicking up dust and making trouble. Yes. Tell me, open for me rather, the Overton window. Uh, the Overton window. So you may have heard about the Overton window. Uh, people have talked about this, about the way, how do we shift public opinion? And the Overton window is a was in fact interestingly enough, developed by the Atlas Network itself, okay? So Joseph Overton was a think tank staffer um, with the Mackinac Centre, another Atlas think tank in the US. And he described, uh, and this I know from a recent article published by Alejandro Chafuin, who was the, uh, who was the CEO, uh, the president, sorry, of the Atlas Network from 1991 to 2017, over the period in which the Atlas Network expands from having perhaps 70 or 80 institutes around the world to its present scale of around 500 or you know, even more. Um, so he presided over a huge expansion in the scale of the network and a number of countries that it penetrates and influences. And the Overton window he describes as a process that leads to policy change. So the whole purpose of the Atlas is to change government policy, to change governments and to change what the public thinks. Um, this involves crafting ideological messages that can increase or decrease the number of ideas a politician can support without unduly risking their electoral support. So they'll, they'll publish all kinds of articles you'll have. So, for example, the IPA, if we're talking about climate policy, they'll say climate science isn't real or, you know, we should abolish, uh, we should privatise the ABC. Something is so radical that no one would agree with that. And then you have a more moderate think tank like the Centre for Independent Studies, which will say, oh, we think we should not, the government shouldn't pick winners in the energy transition and they should leave it to the market. Their tentacles are everywhere and you describe them reaching out to, uh, to make life difficult for environmental activists pretty well across the planet. Certainly. I mean, because one of the key catalysts for the formation of the Atlas Network in the, in the 80s, so the, the point about the Atlas Network is that the organisation itself, the Atlas Foundation, it was not itself a think tank. It doesn't publish stuff in its own name. It's very quiet about its existence. Um, and its role is to just create new think tanks. So it networks, it finds money, it finds activists, it finds and trains think tank directors and staff and puts it all together to birth new think tanks and then to to some extent to coordinate international campaigns of which the I would suggest we know that the oil companies were completely on top of climate science going back to the late 1950s. They were always at the forefront of knowing what was going on. And by, the, um, by 1981, you have a very clear consensus across the scientific community and within the oil companies themselves that climate change is, is going to be uh, catastrophic. Um, so right from the beginning, we see this uh, effort to discredit environmentalists and environmental science. And if we take that into the present, we see uh, particularly in the UK, for example, where you have had this very draconian legislation passed recently, um, prompted by an organisation called Policy Exchange. Now, I'm not entirely... Uh, that doesn't appear on the Atlas Network list from 2020, but it does all of the same kinds of things with very similar staff. 
And what they did was to publish this report saying that Extinction Rebellion, these non-violent protest movements, that sure they get in the way of cars or they might write things on footpaths, that they're, they're extremists and terrorists that are taking over and we need to crack down and put well, them Well, I'm astonished and sad to remind the listener that it's Labor governments here in Australia that have passed and are passing laws criminalising environmental protests. It's true, and um, we might look at South Australia where the, lab, where the oil and gas lobby, Appia, held a conference, I believe it was last year, where the um, my resources minister, Madeleine King, said, we are at your service, Labor government, we, we're on your side. And the next day we see um, through the, yeah, this, this legislation being rammed through without any debate, which, which gives, uh, you know, I believe, you know, the potential jail sentences for simply, you know, for very minor misdemeanors such as blocking a road or um, something like that. And there's, you know, we have to compare that to the fact that if we look at the tax transparency report from the tax office, I mean, we have companies like Santos, Exxon, Chevron, Peabody Coal paying zero tax in Australia. Okay, finally, The Voice. Despite the uh, no campaign, they're saying that the uh, Voice campaign was driven by the elites. The no campaign certainly was funded by the elites of the business world. Certainly. Um, look, we don't, I don't know, apart from what's been reported about the funding going to Advance, which was this pop up unit established uh, in 2018 and 2019, which then ran the entire No campaign featuring Warren Mundine and, and, and Jacinda Price on all their communications. Um, now, this organisation um, was established, if we go back to 2018, you can see on their website that the original board included uh, figures including Maurice Newman and Sam Kennard. Now, uh, Maurice Newman, who you may remember was... A, well, he was the chair of the ABC. Right, in which capacity he said that we should have more people on the ABC that say that climate change... Uh, that dispute the science of climate change. Um, now, just that, that, that Newman was one of the founders of the Center for Independent Studies in 1976 and one of the founders of the Advance uh, Campaign Unit. And the CIS has uh, Price and Mundine as, you know, scholars on their website. But also, you know, Warren Mundine was the chair of an organization called Liberty Works, another Atlas think tank and so on. In this world of smoke and mirrors, the uh, the board of the Centre for Independent Studies was uh, not unanimous in their opposition to The Voice. Several uh, supported the Yes campaign, including financially, and the CIS say that uh, it was neutral in the campaign and also let the record show mining giants BHP and Rio Tinto publicly supported The Voice, so uh, there was no universal opposition to The Voice from the mining industry. Cogitate upon that, dear listeners, and uh, cogitate on the writings of Dr Jeremy Walker, Senior Lecturer in Social and Political Science at the University of Technology, Sydney. Post-scriptum, we asked the Institute of uh, Public Affairs the Centre for Independent Studies, and Advance, whether they were connected to the Atlas Network. Advance denies any connection. The IPA neither confirmed or denied, and uh, the Centre for Independent Studies did not respond by airtime. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.